Today on the Tech Reset Show, we have Andrew Hughes, MD. Dr. Hughes is a board-certified psychiatrist in private practice, and on today's show, we unpack a lot of different topics, ranging from AI to how AI is impacting the research process, the pros and cons of ChatGPT, why social media is so addicting, and a whole lot more. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Andrew Hughes. Andrew Hughes, welcome to the Tech Reset Show. How are you? Do well. Thanks for having me for us. Excited to be here. So before we jump in and unpack, what's one habit that you do that you wish you could improve a little bit tech-related? I think uh, so. I'm a somewhat new parent. I have a 20-month-old at home, and I'm finding more and more that the urge to pull my phone out in moments of like lulls of excitement or just moments of things being quiet is pretty powerful. And I think when you're just doing it on your own, you don't notice it all that much. But when you have a toddler that's looking to you for attention and focus and excitement and how they interact with the world, it's pretty disruptive. So it's something that's been hard, but making some progress. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's so important for all of us, especially parents, to be focused, present, and be mindful with how our relationship is evolving with technology. Yeah, especially with how busy things are these days. It's hard if you don't stop and think about it. It's wild. So on today's show, we want to unpack more of your background, how you became a psychiatrist, how you landed in the Pacific Northwest. We're going to talk a little bit about how you got involved with the company, and then let's unpack some interesting things about AI and how tech's impacting our lives and how social media might not necessarily be the worst thing in the world, but certainly comes with some risks that we need to be mindful of. And I think this will be a really great segue into some amazing guests that we're going to have coming up very soon on the show. So Andrew, maybe start off. How did you get involved in the space? What got you motivated to become a psychiatrist? Give us your your story. Tell us the, the journey of Andrew. So grew up in North Dakota. Dad's a doc himself. He's a pulmonologist. And I think he did the smart approach of saying, don't become a doctor. Whatever you do, just just don't do that. That's too much. And I think it's a bit of a mental judo there. I want to be a rebellious kid. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I actually want to be a doctor. That's a good idea. So to kind of tie in some of the tech stuff there, growing up in North Dakota, it's lots of hunting, fishing, outdoor stuff, that sort of thing. I never really identified all that much with that. I was really into, I mean, I got my first Nintendo when I was like six years old and computer soon after that. So growing up with technology just rolling out, it was just a really exciting time to to grow up. So part of me is focused on technology growing up. And as I go through my education and move on to next steps, I'm thinking about what I want to do for a career and briefly considered engineering, a different approach. And ultimately went to college at the University of British Columbia up in Canada to get a little variety and took a course in cognitive psychology that just blew my mind and realized that understanding how the mind works and consciousness and that type of question really sparked my interest and suddenly miraculously became a much better student at the same time. Turns out you're interested in it. It makes you a lot more motivated. So debated the road of doing the the PhD route for psychology, got really into research around that time and understanding how the brain works and a lot of similarities to computers actually using computers to test the brain and run people through different experiments and interesting things along those lines. And I was strongly considering going the PhD route, which is mostly research. I was checking in with myself as to what's my favorite part about this. And one of my favorite parts was the moment where as the kind of research assistant on the, the front lines there, I got to welcome in each participant, sit them down at the computer, ask them about their day, tell them the experiment, that sort of thing, that face-to-face aspect of things. So I realized I couldn't go 100% into research because oftentimes as a PhD researcher, you're a couple steps removed from that. So that got me back on track to thinking about medicine. Thought about neurology for a little bit, went off to med school back in North Dakota, be closer to home for a little bit, but then did a a rotation in psychiatry. And again, same as that moment in that cognitive psychology class in undergrad was just blown away, just 
understanding how the mind can bend various ways and you can run into these different challenges in life that people try to learn ways to cope with them and then the coping strategy that gets you through one situation may actually cause problems in another situation and untangling that in a, in a therapeutic setting was just a really fascinating problem for me so decided to focus on psychiatry also with a little bit of research in there as well found my way back out as close to British Columbia as I could get while still going to a residency that was a US-based residency that was in Portland, Oregon at Oregon Health and Science University, which brought me out this way in 2016. Entered into the research track there, finished residency and went off into private practice. I'm still affiliated with OHSU and still continuing some of my research over there in nutrition and integrative psychiatry, looking at supplements and that sort of thing. And have been doing mostly private practice these days. And my private practice is very psychotherapy-based. So my general philosophy is I want to use treatments that are evidence-based that maximize benefits while minimizing side effects. And while we've come a heck of a long way with medications and the modern antidepressants and treatments we have for psychosis and that sort of thing are miles ahead of what they were even 40, 50 years ago, they still have a lot of side effects. And it's not something that everybody should be taking for the rest of their life. I'm really passionate about things like psychotherapy, which I do with most of my patients and has huge evidence for change with no side effects other than your time. Things like nutrition and exercise and sleep. And along those lines, I think finally full circle converging, my interest in technology has come to match up with my interest in mental health. And that's two ways. One, that technology allows for a lot of new treatments. There's a lot of app-based treatments for mental health and transcranial magnetic stimulation, which uses a, a magnetic pulse to change the brain, activate the brain in a certain way that can relieve depression and is impressively effective, but also in ways that harm mental health. It's causing people to get more and more sucked into their phones, something I think we're all experiencing, more and more distressed, not having the same connections we used to. So it's really intertwining with my work these days. With regards to digital detox, of course, you reached out to me and say, I think like six months or so, maybe a little longer than that now, and asked if I'd be interested in consulting. And I was actually at the time still thinking like, I really want to get involved with this techie side of me somehow. So it was just kind of serendipitous that you reached out. And it's just been fantastic so far, um, working with DD and seeing the goal to not just demonize tech and say, hey, we got to put everybody in a phone jail or time out and you can't use these things ever again, you're going to get left behind by modern society if that's the case, but better educate people and help people understand the risks and benefits associated with it, which is really what we do in psychotherapy for, for most things. So it's been a really exciting journey so far. I think mental health and technology are two of the most exciting fields currently and for the next five to 10 years. So there's going to be a lot of really incredible developments coming out that I'm excited to be a part of. Well, that's just wonderful. A lot to unpack there. And, you know, one key clarification you mentioned at the end, me personally, and as a company, we're not anti-tech at all. I have the latest tech usually all the time. I think it could do some amazingly powerful and beneficial things, but the data shows us that across the world, it could also do some absolutely detrimental things. So at the end of the day, I'm an advocate of finding balance, right? You could have too much good of one thing and you got to be very, very aware of how you're spending your time. And that's really what I'm all about. So going back a couple of things you mentioned that, you know, the benefit of that one-on-one human connection and research when you were studying, it, has technology significantly changed the the research dynamic where everything's virtual or online, or is there still a meaningful place for that one-on-one connection from a research perspective? I think definitely. I mean, technology has helped the research world and 
so many ways and it's also causing some hiccups. I think one that I learned of recently, I have a friend that works in the cognitive psychology of marketing and a lot of the research they do these days is large scale computer-based things. So people get paid small amounts of money to be respondents to different questionnaires and psychological tests and that sort of thing. And they're finding that a lot of the data that's come out over the past maybe five, 10 years, maybe bots because people find out that, hey, you can make some money responding to these questionnaires. Well, I'm a smart coder. I can create a little program that goes and responds to these in a somewhat randomized way. And I get maybe 15 cents a pop, but I can do a bunch of these and people can make a decent amount of money. A problem of cutting out the face-to-face aspect of this and just going full digital is somebody may find a clever way to circumvent that. And the data um, doesn't actually represent true human data. Another one other thing I would add to that is in mental health research, we are often trying to, and really in any research, trying to look at studies with a large population. So as many people as we can get and get an average of the data over that, and that will give us the best representation, ideally, this is in theory, of the average person. So if we say that screen time is bad for mental health, then we measure 10,000 people and it says on the whole, screen time increases risk of depression X percent or something like that. Say that the average person would have that same risk level, but the average person is not 10,000 people. Each individual does have their own background and their own experiences. And that's something that I experience in my psychotherapy work all the time is there's all these things that this treatment should work for this person based on all the data, but getting to understand them on a more individual level, it doesn't always work that way. And we have to tailor it to each person's background and interests and options and capabilities in order to get the best results. So there are many, many benefits of bringing technology into this, but also some downsides. Yeah. You know, in terms of scale, it's very, very appealing. And we do it with some of our research as well to have access to that many different individuals to provide feedback on whatever data point we're looking at. But at the end of the day, there's something just magical and beautiful about having an actual conversation, you know, whether it's in a formal focus group or a follow-up interview, because you glean just different information by hearing someone elaborate versus selecting one of five on a Likert scale. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, as the person doing these things, it's just such a different experience to be just looking at a bunch of numbers that represent humans versus interacting with the humans. And we actually run into this problem a lot because that same thing I was struggling with in undergrad, do I go the research route or do I go the clinical route? That is a question that's faced by a lot of people in mental health or medicine in general. And what you end up with is the people that are research over here and really knowledgeable in humans are numbers. And then the clinical people over here, which are very knowledgeable in the individual, and they don't talk to each other all that well. The researchers are making decisions about the clinical and the clinical are making decisions about the research. And we don't have as much crossover. So having that separation between the two can create some problems. That makes sense. So you mentioned in your current practice, you're focused heavily on psychotherapy in addition to the psychiatry, the traditional medicated side. Am I correct that most psychiatrists focus much more on the latter traditionally and they're more for prescribing shorter relationships? Or is there a trend in psychiatry to be focusing a lot more on the psychotherapy, psychology side of things? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a confusing one for a lot of people. And the answer would be yes and no. The pendulum has been swinging back and forth since the beginning of mental health care and particularly psychiatry. So way traditionally, back in the day, around the time of Freud and before that, psychiatrists were the primary people doing psychotherapy. And even things like psychoanalysis, Freud was the father of and was the most prominent psychotherapy for many years. You had to be a physician in order to be 
credentialed in that and practice psychoanalysis. We since realized that that was a little bit restrictive and you don't need necessarily a medical background in order to do psychotherapy and have, I'd say with very good results, opened it up to many different backgrounds of people doing psychotherapy. When medication started to come out and be quite a bit more effective, starting with some antipsychotics and early antidepressants and that sort of thing. There was this effect where it seemed like, hey, we don't need to spend all this time doing psychotherapy with people. And many times it, it doesn't work or it's expensive or time consuming when we can just give people a pill. And doctors felt like that was great for understandable reasons. Patients felt like that was great. Hey, just give me a pill. I don't have to go through all this self-exploration. And particularly hospitals and insurance companies thought it was great. Like, hey, this is quite a bit cheaper than paying somebody for their time every single week for a really long period of time. So there was this big push to move more into the biological approach of psychiatry and mental health. And given that psychiatrists were the only ones in mental health that could prescribe, whereas psychologists and social workers and other great members of the team don't have prescribing privileges in most places, they started to focus more on psychotherapy while psychiatrists went off into the more biological realm of things. Currently, when residents are looking at different training programs, they'll often ask the question of, is this program more biologically oriented or psychologically oriented? because some have been either just medications and kind of forget the therapy side and some have been more focused on psychotherapy. But more and more these days, they are coming back together. So more and more psychiatrists are starting to do psychotherapy again and recognize the benefits of it. It's hard because insurance often won't pay for it in that respect. They would prefer psychiatrists to kind of just do those quick med management visits. But I think the evidence that is coming out is repeatedly showing that Psychotherapy is equal to, if not a little bit better than medications in most settings, and doesn't have the side effects associated with it. And the combination of psychotherapy and medications together is better than both of those alone. I think people are recognizing that it's a really valuable tool to use. I mean, have many patients say that they really appreciate having their psychopharmacologist, the medication side of things, and their psychotherapist in the same person. So in the same visit, they're going to talk about both of these things. That's really, really important. And a segue here, I want to talk with tech. There's always a gray area and pros and cons, but how has telehealth, online therapy, online psychiatry, let's talk about the pros and cons there. Because in some cases, it's giving access to individuals that might not otherwise have access, whether affordability or insurance reasons or geographic reasons to resources. But in other cases, it's really easy. Anyone could go and get a prescription for an antidepressant or an anxiety medication without any interaction with the online pharmacist or online psychiatrist. So I'm curious what you think of that. And then also, I guess, separating that, there's a lot of sites that have become very, very popular on the psychotherapy side that aren't prescribing at all and talk about the pros and cons there. So I think that's a wonderful example of how technology can really help in a lot of ways. And also, if we're putting the cart before the horse and we get too overeager, I think can cause problems. So just personally, I started my private practice in the midst of the pandemic in 2020s when I moved into private practice. I felt pretty lucky to be able to have telehealth as an option to keep my family safe, keep my patients safe, be able to work with people who were stuck at home and struggling. And really, I kept it 100% telehealth for the first two years that it was open. And it was really effective in a lot of ways. And I actually considered just going full telehealth because travel, be a digital nomad, and um, there's lots of benefits to doing that. But I've started more recently bringing people back into the office and really finding most people prefer the actual in-person experience. I think that was something that was missing. I've had at least one patient that said like, you know, all that stuff we were doing online before this, that was nothing. This is now we're really doing the real work. And I think that that is the case in a lot of ways. But as you said, 
there are situations where people wouldn't be able to, I mean, access a, a therapist, much less a psychiatrist in person. They're in rural areas or they have a really busy work schedule. So doing it via telehealth is exponentially better than not doing it at all. Ideally, a therapist that they're working with regularly that is licensed and not kind of a revolving door, more McDonald's type of therapy approach that you know, you're getting some of these days. So swinging over to the part of your question where things are getting a little bit off the rails. And I think it's anytime we are trying to scale slow human experience very quickly, trying to put therapy in a box or medication visits in a box, which require a really, in my opinion, in-depth personal history, understanding the person on a deep level, not just looking at a couple bullet points of their life, and then making informed decisions that way to not cause problems. A lot of these larger companies, and I don't want to name and shame too much, but the ones that are offering just therapy from your phone via messaging back and forth or a quick visit. I've heard a lot of horror stories of people feeling like they're finally getting help, feeling like they're finally having this connection, but getting clearly just copy and paste messages into their inbox about the struggles that they're going through, their traumas and that sort of thing, or having to shift therapists over and over again. One of the central, absolutely central pieces of psychotherapy being effective is the what's called the therapeutic relationship. And that's the bond between a patient or client and the therapist. More important than type of therapy provided, demographic aspects, all sorts of things. Do you feel connected to this person? And if you are just Text messaging a person that is switched every four weeks, there's not going to be much of a therapeutic relationship there. So that primary piece that drives the improvement goes out the window. So lots of potential options for improvement with telehealth, being able to monitor things more closely. I know Apple with their new software update is including mental health questionnaires. So you'll get buzzed every now and then to measure depression and anxiety. And I am so excited for that. So it'll kind of keep a graph of my patient's scores and can send that to me. So these types of things are hugely helpful. But when we try to distill things down too much to their marketable parts and then just throw them as wide scale as we can, I think we give people the sense that they're getting psychotherapy when they're really not. And that can put them in a worse spot than they were in the first place. Turns it into a transaction. And when it comes to mental health, that's probably not optimal. Yeah. Yeah. There are as, as many lines as we try to draw between general medicine and general health and mental health, there's a lot of similarities there, but there are also a lot of differences. You can't just look at a number and say, this is the right thing for that person 100% of the time. Oh, absolutely. So let's open up a can of worms with AI and ChatGPT. I think some people are using ChatGPT as a therapist, if you will, where it's asking questions about depression or anxiety. And I'm sure some other online sites are starting to adopt AI to create this conversational therapy, if you will. Have you seen much of that? What are your thoughts on how that evolves? And is that good or bad? Can it be effective? I think it's fascinating that, you know, this concept of having a conversation about your mental health with a computer, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. Psychiatrists were a little bit smug about the chances of ever being replaced by technology, whereas there's other medical specialties that are a little bit more at risk. We always think like, well, our interpretations and our work and our understanding is just so much more in depth that'll never happen. But you turn on ChatGPT and say, hey, from here on out, you are Sigmund Freud, but like with modern day knowledge, you'll behave as such. I'm going to do psychotherapy, you'll get some pretty impressive response, some pretty insightful reactions. And I'll play with that every now and then. I'll, if I'm trying to think about a case a different way in a very non-specific way to the person, I'll throw in a couple variables and I'll say, using different theoretical backgrounds, maybe psychoanalytic, kind of behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, give me various treatment approaches to this type of ailment or situation. And I'll get some pretty great jumping off points. It's almost as if you have like a team of people that you bounce ideas off of all the time. And I think that 
a fast research assistant, if you will. The way I actually think about that a lot and the way I would describe these things is it is the fastest, smartest research assistant you'll ever have whose number one priority is to please you at the expense of facts. So if it doesn't know the answer, it will just throw something at you very confidently. I've had it say, often when I'm looking things up, I'll say, provide citations, like the actual papers. And I've looked up a few of those and they just don't exist. Wow, this is a really fascinating answer. I'm going to use this. I'm tempted to use it in treatment decisions and that sort of thing. And then you actually look up where it's getting its data and it just completely fabricated it. So to be clear, you're using it as a therapist, as a research tool and a collaboration tool just to get additional perspective, not necessarily to take verbatim and use that as therapeutic advice for your patients. Is that accurate? Correct. So it would be something, and I'd say I'm using this sometimes in the therapy space, but more so in the medication space, I'll say like, does fluoxetine interact with Wellbutrin when combined with this medication and what's the mechanism of action or that sort of thing? Just trying to oral do things like write a quick patient guide on the use of lithium as a medication. And then of course, I'll fact check it and that sort of thing. But the speed at which it can put together a patient guide on lithium saves me hours. And it's a really concise, most of the time accurate output. So really incredible tool there. I think one of the questions you had asked is about patients using it as a therapist. Yeah. From the patient's perspective, if I go on there, I'm whatever, depressed, anxious, having this relationship issue, and I'm using ChatGPT to help navigate that versus an actual therapist. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are pros and cons. I'm hesitant to lean too far into the pros because I think they're actually could be good. Like in the sense that let's say that you say you are one of the best therapists out there with these backgrounds, like behave as such, you may get some reasonable responses. And I've played with that kind of pretending to go down that road a couple of times since like, wow, if like a trainee was giving these responses, I'd actually be pretty impressed. A couple problems that you run into, and I think the biggest one is privacy. We are bound by something as therapists, psychiatrists, with threat of losing our, our license, our board certification by something called HIPAA. Um, so we have to be HIPAA compliant, which means that we have to very closely guard people's personal information. And in psychotherapies and mental health in general, that's of utmost importance. Being able to feel confident that what people are telling me is going to remain with me and not be spread around helps people open up and get to these more deeper, tender things. But when you are telling your darkest secrets or worries to AI, you are giving it, you're feeding it information. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and say that it's going to go use that against you or anything like that. I don't think we have any evidence to suggest that, but there is no guarantees of what is going to happen with that information. So that is a, a major risk of working with them. And then I think the other big problem would be that overeager research assistant analogy that I gave earlier is if it runs into a situation where it doesn't know the answer, it doesn't have good advice or a good empathetic response, it's going to make something up. That sounds pretty convincing. And theoretically, that could kind of spin out down a really difficult road where you could feel like you're getting true psychotherapy, you feel like you're getting helped, but it's actually making you worse. And we just don't have enough data to know if that's the case. Maybe that will be developed in the near future. But at the present time, I would strongly recommend against trying to use any sort of AI as your primary form of therapy. I'm with you completely. Fast forward 10, 15 years, maybe even two years, heck. Do you think we'll get to a point, though, where AI can get so sophisticated, so fact-checked, so HIPAA compliant that it could ultimately replace like, psychotherapy with one-on-one -on -one humans? Ultimately, like, yes, someday, I think so. I think you can get to a point where it will about replace entirely. I think there's some, still something about interacting with a human that we're going to want. But if you were to just be interacting with both via text or your computer, you may not know the difference. And I don't know if that's 10 years down the road, but it could be longer, but just with the exponential growth that we have, I think that's inevitable to some degree. I think pretty unlikely in the near future that I'd say, even in my lifetime, that therapists, psychiatrists are replaced by 
AI or ChatGPT or anything like that. And one place that I think it could be helpful is kind of the initial stages in the process. So one of the major problems that we have in mental health and therapy right now is this is actually a, a side effect of a good thing. So the good thing is that stigma of um, getting therapy is significantly decreased these days. A lot more normalized to go out there and get psychotherapy to talk about your mental health to, to get help. But the rate at which people are seeking therapy does not match the rate at which we are training new therapists. So it's really hard for people to find therapists. And people who are depressed or anxious or working through a really difficult time in their life are having to do this process over and over again where they reach out and don't get responses back and don't get help. And it's just a really painful thing. So something that AI could do there is to become somewhat of a mental health assistant and that it could like get a bit of a, a history, a background, help distill what they're looking for and what would be best for them into a package that then could be sent to therapists and say, hey, this person's looking for a therapist. It seems like you'd be a good fit for this person. So kind of as a first stop and helping them get connected to somebody that's a, a human that could help and they have a connection with, but not the whole package of you set it up, do your therapy and um, you're on your way. That's fascinating. Well, we'll see where it goes. You're pretty young, so I have a feeling in, in your lifetime, there's going to be some pretty massive innovations. On this conversation of conversational AI, on another episode, we talked with Dr. Mothner a little bit about this, and I'm curious your thoughts. There's a trend on online dating apps and some new innovative companies that you could pretty much create your own AI relationship, your own AI girlfriend or boyfriend, have real-time conversations not have to deal with swiping and finding an actual match and going on a, God forbid, actual date, right? And have just a complete virtual experience, similar to the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix, which was over 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm curious your thoughts about that. How does that benefit some individuals? How does that harm our ability to form meaningful connections? Where's your head at? I think it's a really interesting question, philosophically, ethically. There's a lot of things I think in there that we could do hours and hours of episodes on. Oftentimes, I think it depends on what time horizon you're thinking about. So do we want to make somebody's life better today or do we want to make somebody's life better long-term permanently? Loneliness, I think it was just declared an epidemic in the US. It is um, a major problem, leads to early death, increased risk of heart attack, cancer, all sorts of risks associated with loneliness. The no chemical receptors that are activated when you feel loved and cared for and that in turn you feel terrible and heartbreak when you don't have those things. Those are the same receptors that heroin acts on. When you use heroin, same receptors are activated when you're in withdrawal. It's the same feeling of being extremely alone. So it's a very powerful thing that's ingrained in us. And when people are feeling lonely, they feel pain and it's intolerable and they want to fix that. So in the short term, having these pseudo relationships, these AI relationships may relieve that pain. If you are somebody that's struggled with online dating and you haven't been able to either for time, resources, access, get into a, a dating pool or a type of relationship, it can relieve some of that pain. And I think in, in that sense, it can be a wonderful thing. And maybe it can help you understand what it's like to have such a flirty exchange or something like that. So not necessarily a bad thing entirely. However, I think our brains have a way of measuring whether we're really getting connection. I've heard an example of this once as mentioned as the who will feed your cat example. So if you go on vacation, how many people can you think of that will help come feed your cat or feed your dog? And our brains kind of keep a running tally of that going something like that at all times. If things get bad for me, are there people that are there? Do I have a social safety net? And when the answer is no, and you only have an AI or online relationships with people you've never met, there's this sense of danger. It's similar to where our brains evolved, roaming the plains. You felt much safer when you were with a tribe of people. You knew if you were attacked or your animals or something happened, you had people around you. 
But if you're roaming by yourself, you have to be on alert all the time. So I think long-term, if people just start having these AI relationships, it may relieve some of that pain immediately, but there's always going to be that lingering sense that you don't have somebody there for you if things do get bad. Somebody that's real, you could talk to, you could interact with, that could come and beat your cap. Maybe AI will get there at some point. But I think that's a, a major risk and will lead to more depression that is kind of simmering and slowly grows under your awareness. Overall, it has a potential to relieve pain immediately, teach people ways of maybe getting to that real relationship, but long-term likely cause more distress and more separation from these things that we really need in our life, like real human relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, humans at the core are pain avoiders and pleasure seekers, right? And this uh, might satisfy both in the short term, but as you mentioned, it's going to snowball into potentially more anxiety, more loneliness, more depression once you don't have that person to come and feed your cat. So in your practice, what are you seeing? Is there anything specifically related to social media and technology that's a reoccurring theme? Yeah, there's a number of things. The one that I think I'm seeing the most these days is I'll often get people coming in complaining of um, either social media or video game addiction or something along those lines. And oftentimes when we're thinking about addiction, we're thinking it's something that the person is thinking about all the time. So if you're addicted to alcohol, if you're at an event where you're not supposed to have alcohol, it's going to be kind of nagging in the back of your mind. Like, are you going to drink? When are you going to acquire it next? How are you going to drink it? Who are you going to be with? That sort of thing. But it's not quite what I'm seeing with social media and video games. Not entirely. I think there is that in some cases, but more as an escape method, a way to distract oneself from uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Unfortunately, as humans, we run into stressful things and challenges in our life, and that's going to happen on a pretty regular basis. And our brains have mechanisms for working through these things. So we have basically access to about 5% of conscious awareness. The rest of 95% is just behind the scenes workings and that sort of thing. So if you have a bad breakup, for example, or a difficult day at work, there is a lot of important processing that happens when you sit with those uncomfortable feelings and work through them. Your brain says, what happened? How could I avoid this in the future? What situations could brought me to this? And a lot of that's really uncomfortable, but it's important as well to be able to work through similar problems in the future. But with technology and social media and video games available to us, we have a quick out of that. As you mentioned earlier, avoiding pain and, and seeking pleasure. Instead of thinking about that bad day at work, I could pop on Elden Ring and get into this totally different world where um, I'm a wizard or have superpowers and it brings a lot of relief in the moment and it's this wonderful state to be in but it doesn't deal with those problems it doesn't teach us to sit with those uncomfortable emotions at all so the more people do this the more they get intolerance to those uncomfortable emotions and the more they have to quickly get into these states of um, scrolling social media or playing video games or that sort of thing it's a bit of an escape hatch which i will say if used responsibly can be helpful there are times where you just gotta get your mind off things and relax and play is so important. Interacting with others is so important. Organizing a get-together through social media can be fantastic. But if you're avoiding real life and feeling these uncomfortable emotions by jumping to these tools every single time, you're getting yourself further and further into debt psychologically, really causing more problems than you're helping. So that tends to be most of what I'm seeing these days that's used as an escape mechanism. That's fascinating. Can you speak a little more to the addictive properties of social media? Because what's interesting, you know, if you touch a hot stove, you learn very quickly that causes pain. I'm not going to touch the hot stove, right? With narcotics, it's very different mechanical element going on and chemically going on. What's going on with social media? Because I think most people recognize, wow, I 
feel really bad after I'm spending all these hours on social media, but I keep going back. Do you attribute that to the algorithmic wizardry of some of the big tech companies? Is there just this strong desire for social acceptance and approval that they just keep coming back to post content to garner that? What's going on here that makes it so addicting and creates this snowball effect for individuals to keep feeling worse? It's a really great question. And I think something that a lot of people struggle with. So a lot of this comes down to classical conditioning. So it's the distance between the stimulus and a response. So stimulus in your example of the stove, burn your finger, you put your hand on the stove and the response being, ah, that really hurts. When that is late immediately like that, your brain can say, touching that thing makes me feel really bad. Don't do that anymore. And it's a very clear link. But the stimulus and the response, the negative response with something like social media is much further apart. So if you are opening up social media because you're feeling lonely, you actually feel better for a moment. This is a number of ways you want to feel better because you feel a little bit less lonely. You feel connected to others, albeit it's almost like I'd say it's just as connected as going to a party, but standing outside and looking through the windows. You're there, but you're not really there. So it relieves some of that pain temporarily. It also activates other parts of your more primitive brain. So we have this reflex called the, the seeking urge or the seeking reflex, which is kind of a foraging thing. So when we're scrolling through social media, it really activates that. And for early humans looking for food or shelter or a new place to live, that was a really helpful thing. And it feels really good. It's one of the most enjoyable feelings we can have. So by scrolling through social media or your news feed or something like that, that is activated and feels good for a while. And then there's the more antagonistic content. So-and-so slams so-and-so on the news or 10 reasons you need to be terrified of going to Walmart or something like that. That activates the threat detection part of our brain, which again says, hey, you got to pay attention to this. And that can feel good for a moment. I am keeping safe. I am paying attention to something. You start by feeling bad. Let's say you're lonely, you're at home, you feel disconnected from people, and you know that there's a very close stimulus response between pulling your phone out and feeling better. You feel connected, you feel aware of danger, you feel like you're able to search for what you need to look for. The downsides don't come until later, until you are done with social media. There is the sense that maybe you would feel more connected to people, but actually you feel more alone. You feel more lonely. You see other people having fun and you get that feeling of FOMO or just being disconnected from others and you end up with more of a deficit. So your brain says, yep, check the box. I was social today, but who's going to feed your cat? Deficit is greater. So then you end up feeling worse and people can recognize that they feel worse, but it's hard for them to all the time connect it to what they were just doing because there's that separation in time between the stimulus looking at social media or whatever and feeling worse later. And my brains aren't quite as good at that. Just like if you eat food from a restaurant and you get violently ill immediately, you will not go there again. But if you eat from a restaurant regularly and a week later, you start to have some stomach problems, you're going to have a hard time connecting that. So this is where the education piece comes in. You help people identify, hey, this reason you're feeling so bad is because of this thing that you're doing there. Let's try to be more mindful of that. So when you eat a bunch of candy, it feels good right away, but the next day you actually, do you recognize how gross you feel consistently? And you start to link their attention there. And then eventually they can say, hey, actually, I don't want to eat this candy because I know that I feel nasty the next day. Or I don't want to be on social media because I recognize that makes me feel more alone. So the educational component of this is crucial. And I think what's going to be a great thing for digital detox, really the most important step going forward with helping people understand how to navigate technology. Well, in a future episode, we're going to unpack how this impacts parents, teens, and children, which is a whole different can of worms to dive into. We don't have time today, but as a preview, I mean, teenage minds are just 
so much more vulnerable than adults with everything you just mentioned. And it's a much bigger challenge to overcome. And as a parent, it's daunting. Andrew, this has been a wonderful discussion. We have so many different subtopics that we're going to have future episodes on with you where we double down, double click, and get a lot deeper on. One question to wrap things up, what's something unrelated to tech, a hobby that you love that you wish you could spend a little bit more time on? with a, a toddler at home it's like everything <laughs> i'm sure you're aware it's um, the time for hobbies goes away i think i'm a huge fan of the outdoors and backpacking being able to just really disconnect from things and be out in nature and feel that pre-technology sense that time can pass and it feels like a very quick period of time even though you're not occupied with something every moment you can just kind of sit there and watch the sunset for a long period of time and it's something that i think is hard to Savor these days. Um, but when you're out backpacking, it's a lot easier to do. It just seems like time passes in different speed. So that would be something that I would I'd love to spend some more time doing. Well, the weather's still nice here in the Pacific Northwest. Hopefully you have a few more weeks, a few more months to get outside. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit trickier with a, a toddler, but he's a pretty good hiker. So I think maybe six or so years from now, we're going to go backpacking again. But for now, it's parks and short hikes. Well, all in due time. Well, Dr. Hughes, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining the Tech Reset today. We can't wait to have you back again. Thanks, Forrest. It's been great. Appreciate it. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Reset Show. Tech Reset is brought to you by Digital Detox, who helps people in over 80 countries improve tech life balance. You could learn more about our products and services and also get your free Dora score at digitaldetox.com. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again soon.